0: This week, us Doctor Who fans were lucky enough to watch the penultimate episode of Doctor Who Flux, titled Survivors of the Flux, the fifth episode of what's been promoted as a special six-episode serialised Doctor Who series entitled Doctor Who Flux. It's an episode ripe for discussion, and discussing it will be myself, Neo from Australia, along with N'Giga and Tome, both from England. I want to start off like we usually do asking what we liked about the episode and then after that I want us to try and explain the episode to each other because this was quite something. So Tome why don't you start? What did you like about this episode?
1: Well, it's a big ask. Um not a huge deal. Um but I there were a few sort of fun grace notes and things I had a good time with. Um Yeah. I I quite I still like Carvanista. A lot. I think he's definitely one of Chibnall's most kind of endearing and fun um, characters, and so I always quite enjoy when he shows up. Well, obviously, he didn't have a huge role this time around, but um, yeah, nice to see him again. Um, there are sort of a few aesthetic things I quite liked. So I quite like, for example, the um, the Division World Tree looking. Oh,
0: yeah, nice set. Yeah, I like that set. Yeah,
1: yeah. Um, so that was good. And um, yeah otherwise I, I I quite like Craig Parkinson's performance as um, Prentice/ serpent I think he's quite fun he's quite kind of again a bit like swarm and azure there's not really much meat or substance particularly there but he's just quite good at the sort of camp villainy uh, type thing and um, yeah yeah that that kind of that's quite fun to watch but um yeah slim pickings I have to say in terms of what I really liked this week
0: Gig, do you have a longer list? Um, no.
2: <laughs> I liked the gag um, one lump or two. That was funny. And I liked the cheesiness of Grand Serpent having a snake on his tie. I <laughs> appreciate it. It's little things like that. Um, similarly, I, I loved the, the Division set with that giant CGI tree. Very cool looking. Um, yeah. Oh, oh, and of course, the Thasmin scene with the uh, oh, no. emergency program one style hologram recording and uh, Yaz, Yaz watching it <laughs> to console herself. A bit like Vindor and Belle watching each other's recordings. Uh, like, Belle explicitly had, like, a recording of Vindor that she'd watch a lot. So there's a kind of interesting parallel there if you're looking for kind of Thazmin shipping details.
0: I always am. Yeah,
2: yeah, yeah. Like, y- y- you could accuse Chibnall of actually, like, doing an intentional kind of romantic parallel thing there with Belle and Vindor and Yaz and the Doctor. Like, that would almost be clever. So, you know, that's quite interesting. But, yeah. Yeah, that's it for me.
0: Well, what I liked... Uh, Was I I really like Robert Bathurst. Uh, I like him as an actor. He's an interesting guy. Uh, His show with Stephen Moffat from back in the day, Joking Apart, I find really interesting. So I was happy to see him brought into the show. And yeah, Apprentice, the Great Serpent, I found the concept of bringing in this kind of very broadly sketched character from Vinder's backstory, this kind of tropey mob boss type into the main story, sort of, of the show appealing. I thought that was a novel move, not something I expected from episode three. And then I liked how his charm wasn't enough to make all his dastardly plans work, like the way he had to increasingly resort to just killing people in his funny, snaky way. I liked that. Uh, I liked the bell scenes, as always. Swarm was pretty fun. I liked the interior of Passenger. It was kind of fantasy-esque in there. I liked how that looked. But the most impressive set... Was definitely uh, what you guys mentioned—the world tree set. I love the vibe of that. Uh, technology hooked into the world tree. I like Dan finally connecting his Liverpool love to knowing who Williamson and his tunnels are. That finally happened, so that was cool to see. This is probably a bit of a cheat answer, um, but I liked. Well, it's not a conversation that's over, but I felt some vindication at the overarching timeless storyline being treated in the way that I've been saying for a long time now that it is being treated by Chibnall, which is that not some big convoluted lie about the master or some crazy convolution thing, but pretty much what we got in the series 12 finale. Yeah. And also that the abuse narrative stuff in The Timeless Children was not something Chibnall seemed to be engaging with much himself. So, I felt some validation at the Timeless Children indeed working the way I thought it was working back in the day. Did you guys feel any of those same emotions?
1: The way that there'd been a lot of discussion around the Timeless Children's twists and sort of people not being very clear on whether we were meant to think Tectone was, you know, a, um, some sort of um, abusive uh, colonialist or whether, you know, this was going to kind of end up with some sort of reconciliation or something. And this has been sort of, you know, going backward and forward. And, and the fact that, yeah, it does seem to be playing here very much as though she is, you know, basically a, a, a bad guy or a negative force. I sort of appreciated that because there's a kind of degree of clarity there. I mean, there's lots of things wrong with what happened, I think. But, yeah, that that is something that at least I sort of thought, right, okay, he's kind of on the right side of this uh, argument, if you like. Um, so, yeah, I did appreciate that as well.
0: I, I, I feel like he's framing Tek Tayun's badness... Um, not in the terms that I felt were the really bad ones, which is like she's taken a child and she <laughs> keeps killing a child, uh, but more in like uh, the rules, which, you know, of course, it's it's this character. But yeah, uh, positioning them as a villain, good step, of course.
2: I think a lot of people since Timeless Children were doing that thing of trying to convince themselves that Chibnall wasn't telling the story that he was obviously telling on the screen yeah. in front of us. Yeah, and that's where all the stuff like, Ruth is from season 6B, that's where all of that comes from <laughs> now. So when Chibnall does something like this and basically just continues to tell that story that he was obviously telling about, you know, the Timeless Child stuff all being true, it's like... I sympathise with the vindication there, but again, it's not like anything special happened.
0: It's just the story's continuing in the way that you might expect it to continue. I feel like he's the type of writer that is not trying to um to really like obviously he's going for twists and stuff. He wants to surprise you in that sense, but I don't feel like he's doing some massive substitution move of the show. Like I feel some people are interpreting it as. Like I feel like he's pretty straightforward uh, since two thousand and eighteen, and even in his previous work to an extent about the type of stuff he's writing. And so, yeah, it feels affirming that the way we've been taking the show is the direction the show keeps going down. And it's why, again, I feel comfortable with how we assess these Flux episodes each week because I don't feel like there's some very obscure way he's trying to tell a story here. I feel like he's telling a story the way he has told stories this entire era, more or less. So, yeah. On that note of storytelling, though, I did say I want us to try and explain this episode uh this one lost me a bit it doesn't often happen but i was following it fine for maybe the first half and then i think in that big conversation with the ood, i just actually started bouncing off it i started going i actually don't understand what's going on anymore which very rarely happens to me with this show so that was interesting this was quite complicated at least in terms of how it was getting the information was coming across can either of you guys explain uh, what exactly happened in this episode?
1: <laughs> um, I'll defer to uh, to Gig first. Can... Um. Uh,
2: well, uh, let me see. I think the the main problem with this is that some of the information we get seems uh, incoherent, contradictory. But what I surmised, more or less, is that <clears throat> let me see. Okay. The Division slash Tectayun, because we don't see any other Division people, like, God knows where they all went. So Tectayun wants to, um, basically purge Universe 1 because she is dissatisfied with how the Doctor's influence on it has been like a virus, influencing people to basically go against the Division's uh, wishes. And God knows what the Division's wishes actually are. Again, that's something that hasn't really been defined, especially Gallifrey's been fucking destroyed. That's never addressed. Anyway, where was I? So tectone is going to use the flux this compression shit that she's generating from her hq to um to like compress universe one and obliterate it but while that's happening she also wants to offer the doctor the choice to either rejoin the division and get her memories back and stuff or go back into universe one and die in the flux and stuff so yeah that that's uh that's more or less it I, I, and, it's, and the stuff that confuses that is that the, the tech chain says shit like oh we're going to shut you down in the universe but then she also lifts the doctor out of the universe so she can't save it but then she's going to put the doctor back into the universe if she doesn't rejoin the division which I mean, it's all contradictory it makes yeah. no fucking sense
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah, I, I similarly couldn't, couldn't follow any of that I mean I, the, yeah so there's the wrecking universe one moving on to universe two which you know is sort of presented about as prosaically as kind of moving house but okay um, and uh, <laughs> She, as you say, she, she, she wants to take the Doctor out of Universe 1 because, you know, there's this concern that the Doctor might successfully save the first universe. But then by offering her a place in the second one, surely she's just creating the same problem for herself yeah. Yeah. further down the line. <laughs> so that doesn't seem to make any sense. Um, the other thing is that her, her attitude to the Doctor here seems totally different to her attitude in um, Episode 3. Once Upon a Time, where she was kind of very dismissive and, you know, just kind of, oh, off you go, you know, don't really care about you. Um, I mean, I get that was kind of vaguely dreamlike and uh, I don't even know what was going on there, but sort of why there's a disconnect between her attitude there and her attitude here, uh, I don't think is very satisfactorily explained.
0: The Doctor as... I feel like the core, at least the way Gig described it, this does hold together for me, like this makes sense as a story, but the way it's communicated in the episode... I think it's a combination of things. It's how disconnected Chibnall tends to write in general. Uh, and there's this kind of irony in that he does so much exposition and so many repetitions of exposition, like scenes being repeated, kind of, or the very same kind of exposition being repeated almost back to back. And yet it still it makes me even more confused just because the ways he writes the dialogue is so confusing. And he puts all these disconnected elements in, like we've talked about the time force and swarm and the flux itself you know, being separate and how that really does a number on you when you try to break it down. I feel like there's so many things like that here which obscure what isn't that insane a plot, I think, when it's broken down by that. Because I think the core of the idea that the Doctor's infected the universe and the big nasty institution dislikes that, I feel that is kind of coherent in Chibnall's era because from before Series 11 even premiered, Chibnall always positioned the 13th Doctor as a pillar of hope, like a force of goodness and force for inspiration. So I can see the kind of story sense in the Doctor inspires people in the main universe and there's an evil organisation which doesn't like her inspiring it. So they're going to... Well, then it kind of gets confusing because they're not going to get rid of her. (laughs) They're going to get rid of the universe and they're offering to put her in the other universe. Maybe you could say it's, you know, motherly love of Tectayun. That's... Uh, making things more complicated
1: i mean i, I suppose i suppose there could be something in there about maybe once the doctor has her memories back yeah and knows what she, what her life was like perhaps she will no longer behave in this pillar of hope way that will inspire slash infect uh, universe two i mean that, that's not spelled out whatsoever i'm just just spitballing here but
2: and yet in the episode itself, Tectoom was like, oh, that's this is why I was right to wipe your memories. So it can't yeah. really be like that. It can't be like she wants her to, to have the memories back so she'll be good again. She's like, oh, yeah, we we'll yeah, have to get rid of those memories because they're bad. And oh, It's just all over the goddamn place.
0: She, Yeah, Asbok says, we engineered the flux to shut the universe down and you within it. So she seems to oscillate between uh, really wanting to get rid of the Doctor at times and then, of course, there's the big offer of uh, come to the next universe... Uh, it's, yeah, it's. Aswok is confusing.
2: If they can just jump to the next universe, why are they even bothering to destroy the original one?
0: <laughs> and it comes back to the flux itself being confusing because I feel like in the first episode, the way it was visually represented at least seemed like it was like a scourge, like destroying places. Uh, but like we talked about the other week, that doesn't seem the case anymore. It's making these kind of ascension of the Cybermen ranscore desolate landscapes. Uh, it's, it's so hard to get a handle on some of this stuff. Yeah.
2: And that stuff about basically reducing the impact of the flux just um, you know, devastating planets but leaving them intact, it's just so that for the finale, they can basically repeat themselves again and go, and go like, oh, we're generating the final waves of the flux, and this time it really will destroy the universe for real, like forever this yeah. time.
0: So, Aswok says, Division created the flux because they're wary of the Doctor, because she inspires, she makes people question and rise up, she gives them hope, that's the through line to the pillar of hope stuff which made sense to me uh as what says that can be problematic we all need to clear up after ourselves that's why i had you brought here to ensure you won't be in the universe to save it it's like one of those images the longer you look at it the more it gets confusing i feel like the more i actually look at this dialogue the less sense it makes when i look away it starts cohering in my head
2: yeah It does feel at times like Chibnall was writing it and forgetting what he'd written like five minutes ago or just like he just wrote one page at a time like 30 days apart and just didn't even... It it really is just... It's incredibly slapdash. Like it's easily a slapdash of something like Orphan 55 conceptually.
0: The the thing is a lot of Doctor Who has really convoluted plots that will kind of break down if you look at the elements in this sense. But I think... And I think some people say hypocrisy in this and they're like, when certain previous showrunner did a convoluted plot, (laughs) you didn't treat it like Mm -hmm. this. And I think even if we don't go into why I think these comparisons are an issue, if we take those completely on the level, I think the issue with a story like this is that there's not much of an emotional core to it. Like when you're getting a bit lost in the plot, normally... Like in the Big Bang or whatever, that story is confusing. And it's going to... I think it holds together, um, the actual plot. But it is definitely confusing. But if you get confused by how the actual plot is working, you always have that center of knowing what the emotions of the story are. Because it's very clear what the story is saying about Amy and what the story is saying about the Doctor. So whenever you get lost, you know, out to see the plot, there's something to grab onto, the emotions of it. And a
1: a reason to care, yeah.
0: A reason to care. In this, there's just... I, I find it hard to find one, and I'm looking for one, but the way the story is told is so disconnected and frenetic and slapdash and strange. And then even the scenes themselves, what the actors are doing and the dialogue and the whole story, it's just, I find it very kind of cold and removed, and it's difficult to find an emotional through line to kind of be that guiding light, that cohering light through the story. So, yeah, there's definitely been previous stories as convoluted as this probably, but I think they generally, in New Who at least, have some emotional core that rides us through, and I'm not feeling that here myself.
2: I think the fundamental core elements of this story are so ill-thought-through and so incoherent that it's impossible for actual dramatic stakes to emerge. Like, we can't have an emotional throughline or core to this because it's just not clear how we should feel about practically anything and there's things constantly just you know pushing us in one way and the other way and just you know the the doctor randomly complains at tech for violating time lord directives like she's ever given a shit about that it's (laughs) all just such a mess
1: and yeah on that thing of incoherence i mean you know episodes one and three had their own fair share of sort of hyperactivity and incoherence but i think at least those you know, Chibnok could, I think, coast on a degree of goodwill because of the sort of the energy and the kind of the plethora of different concepts and, and the fact that he was raising questions and mysteries yeah. uh, without needing to answer them. And obviously, you know, something you talked about before, of course, um, here, as we get toward the end game, he actually has to start providing payoff and, and resolution and answers and things, which is, you know, sort of historically where everything all falls apart um, with this particular writer. And yeah, earlier in the season, you know, there's this sense that the bursting at the seams was kind of mad and he didn't really yeah. work, but it was endearing. You know, these the sort of location hopping and timeline hopping and kind of, you know, all these various characters in the mix. Well, plot points who happen to have names um, rather than characters. There's a, You know, you kind of, sort of react to it almost with kind of Chibnall, you absolute mad lad. Whereas now it's kind of just much more frustrating and, yeah, yeah you feel left behind, I think.
0: I think it comes back to some this forever point we have, the too early to judge thing, in an earlier episode, you have more goodwill, even if it's a third <laughs> series of the showrunner, because they're throwing the balls up in the air, you know, and there is time for them to come down. I might personally think they're not going to land very well because of what I've seen the showrunner do before, but it is early enough in the series to be like, well, they haven't fallen yet. Now they're starting to fall, and, you know, as predicted, they're not falling very neatly, and so, yeah, that's. The start of things is nice and fun, even if you know the end of it might not work. I remember Oliver in our earlier discussions was saying that kind of thing, that it's easier to mindfully enjoy the fun of it as it's throwing the balls up. But now that they're coming mm. down, yeah, it's an it's an issue.
1: I was going to say it's a common rhetoric about all three showrunners by this point isn't it that you know various different people I'm sure say it but all the three you know kind of oh they struggle with endings or there's a deus ex machina or whatever I mean it's just a common thing that comes up and you know you see it in other parts of you know the wider cultures of Lost or Game of Thrones or whatever kind of huge issues with endings that people have justifiably or not Um, so yeah this comes up a lot doesn't yeah
0: I think it's an audience thing as much as the actual stories themselves because Mm. early on we can all equally invest because we can all predict and discuss and argue about where things are going it's more kind of communal in that sense you know the start of game of thrones uh you and i might have wildly different interpretations of the series you know but we're both in the kind of equal stance where we can discuss them and neither of us are kind of above the other because we're nowhere near the ending so it doesn't really matter when you come to the end game of things then it's like people are right or they are wrong or the show is validating stuff that like validated or it isn't so i think even if the ending of a show is terrific or terrible, uh, the fact that it's an ending at all is going to make people more divided than a beginning.
2: I think what I come back to is, like, the word deflating, because, like you say in the earlier episodes, it's this whirlwind, this kaleidoscopic kind of rush of ideas. And in this episode, what we get is, like, this long fanwank subplot about an infiltration of Unit just to set up that <laughs> the Sontarans are coming back in the finale. And it's like, rather than being creative or uh, chaotic or whatever, it really is feeling like it's just contracting down into this lump of banality which, uh, the, the kind of lumps of banality that you get in earlier Chibnall seasons, so just, and yeah, it seems like the finale of Flux is basically just going to be multiple bases under siege at once like Santarans sieging the tunnels Santarans sieging Carvinista, Santarans just doing a big siege of Earth just all of that, just ad infinitum and it's just, it's just so boring. And we're just getting all of this. I, I, I mean, in this episode, on top of the unit stuff, you also have Yaz and Dan's whole quest to find the date when this is going to happen. Like They find out it's December 5th, yeah. but they don't know what year it's going to be in. Like Because there's no way it could be the same year as the flux happening, right? There's no way it could be a week after that. No, God knows what year it's going to be. No, all of that just feels like such filler. Like so much of it's just worthless material that doesn't, I I I mean like Yaz's subplot is resolved by Joseph Williamson walking in the door randomly and they're like oh hey yay finally we can know where to go and what to do now and everything you do before that point is just pointless Ugh. it's yeah. like the, the 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 series really is just contracting and just shrinking into like a corn cob of just shit <sighs>
1: It was, yeah, it was one of my notes that, you know, he's just astonishingly inept, this episode, that all three of the major plot lines that we've got going on, if you sort of split them up, and Dan Yaz, Jericho, the Doctor and Tectoon, and then Prentice and Unit, all three of them fizzle out to a sort of really um, bland and banal anticlimax. You know, Prentice spends 60 years, okay, fine, he might dip forward and out in time travel, but he spends 60 years infiltrating Unit only to, okay, defund it, (laughs) <laughs> and call in the Santarans, who are the monsters that only three weeks ago were made out to be pretty ridiculous because they wanted to ride a horse, and suddenly they're your cliffhanger going into the finale. So that's one thing. Then, as you say, you know, the, the trio in the past, they sort of globetrot for three years doing Indiana Jones stuff, and all they managed to figure out is episode six is set next week, <laughs> December the 5th. <laughs> um, they... You know, Dan finally remembers Joseph Williamson is important, which hasn't occurred to him for three years. And they bump into him by complete coincidence, as you say. And then similarly, the doctor and Tek-Tayun, they have this reunion. Absolutely nothing really out of their relationship is mined for any actual drama because she just gets killed off. You know, it's it's genuinely astonishing to me that you know all three of them. It's almost like it's almost like a sort of deliberate parallel, except it probably isn't. You know, that all three of them have this same absolutely, you know, fizzling out to an anticlimax kind of structure. It's incredible.
0: I, Yeah, The well, the interesting thing with the uh, disparate subplots, as usual, was we got this week a few... Well, two I can think of times where uh, the different subplots did uh, link into each other in a kind of uh, logical way. There was uh, the line, uh, don't just stand there, call a doctor, and then we cut to the doctor. Mm. That's great. We don't often get that uh, in this series. Uh, and then... When Dan's cheering up Yaz and he's like, the Doctor's fine, wherever she is, and then we go to where she is. Uh, this is such basic stuff, but we we very rarely get this in flux, and so it was interesting to get two cuts that felt logical. Uh, the, the disparate subplots, I feel like... I think you talked about this in an earlier discussion gig. It's why the episodes feel really long to some of us. It's not because of the actual length itself so much as... The rhythm of the subplots in relation to each other is so disconnected. It's so stop-start that it makes everything feel dragged out rather than like a big flowing river of a sequence all moving together. And this is stuff where people defend it in the context of it's serialized. You know, we've got all these different subplots. It's going to feel, it's gonna feel uh, dodgy or whatever. But this isn't true at all. Like we've talked about Lost or even a lot of Game of Thrones episodes. Uh, I saw the fourth episode of The Wheel of Time this week and it did a great job. It's very basic stuff, but where the three subplots of an episode all have the intentionality and the consideration of the ride, isn't that, okay, a viewers are going to see this scene and this scene and this scene. These subplots aren't directly or geographically connected right now, but the viewer is going to be seeing them in this order. Therefore, there are things we can do. We can introduce information in a scene there and it won't have to be exposition in this scene because viewers have seen it actively done in this scene or we can have links that are visual uh, like i talked about wanting in the halloween apocalypse we can have links that are thematic all this stuff most shows with a lot of subplots and a lot of locations do this all the time uh in this episode i'm cheering at someone mentioning the doctor and then the next scene being the doctor (laughs) you know so it's this this the structure of this Flux series. It's I wonder when this series is defended a lot on the basis of its serialization. I wonder what other serialized shows people are watching or what novels they're reading, because I feel like the bits they're championing aren't really how serialization tends to work or tends to work well at least. And like the very shows Tribunal and Stevens bring up in relation to Doctor Who, like uh, Westworld or HBO shows or whatever else do this in a radically different way than Flux is doing it. So, yeah, I don't feel like the mm. poor rhythm of the show is really excusable or intentional. I feel like it's a, a, a failure of the writing and the editing. And oh,
1: I wonder if the answer to your last question is they're comparing it to earlier classic Doctor Who. They're comparing it to other sort of, you know, poorly paced six-part serials.
0: <laughs> Interesting point.
1: <laughs> I mean, you know, obviously they most six-part serials, the classic Doctor do not have the number of, of um, plot points and so on going on here. Um, and, 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 you know, th- this is obviously twice as long as, as, as most of them as well. Um, it's more like something like the Daleks Master Plan or Trial of a Time Lord or whatever. Um, but yeah, I wonder if that's part of it. Is a is sort of slightly... Uh, snobby's not the right word, but a kind of... Oh, well, you know, it's slowly paced in the old days, but you have to just sit down and watch the whole thing and it all kind of works together in the end type thing um yeah i wonder if there's a degree of that
0: yeah it's interesting if if the show is asking to be seen more in league with uh other modern shows other modern genre shows or whether it's asking to be seen in league more with classic who i could kind of see an argument for i feel like the former is more intuitive but i can kind of see an argument for the latter in how much Mm. the chibnall era does invoke uh some classic era elements and how um I don't know if Chibnall himself has compared this to uh, serialized Classic Who or the Trial of the Time Lord or whatever, but you you totally could. So I guess I can see that, but I feel like maybe the rhythms of Classic Who aren't things to ins- to aspire to in two thousand twenty one. <laughs> I don't know. On the top,
2: on the topic of rhythm and momentum and things being serialized, I think it's worth noting. Right, this is the penultimate episode of Flux, and in order to generate a big conflict for the finale. Rather than draw on stuff that's been set up for six weeks, we have this whole episode just introduce the Grand Serpent going back in time, like, 60-odd years, to do a whole scheme, just so we can have a big fight in the next episode. And we're doing that in episode five. And it's like, this isn't how serialised TV or at least, like, compelling serialised narratives with lots of subplots. This isn't how they work. You know, this feels improvised and slapdash, and like, oh, fuck, we've got to get a big base Under Siege in the next episode. How do we set that up at the last minute? There's a, there's really no sense of a, a plot with momentum building to any sort of climax. It really is just things happening <laughs> in a disjointed fashion. I think the Yaz stuff and the unit stuff of this episode
1: typifies that. It reminds me of the sort of thing that um, Moffat took the piss out of in Jekyll where there's that character who's
0: introduced... <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Oh,
1: God, he's going to be really important. Oh, no, no, he's not important. He's just dead straight away. I what love that, not? yeah. Uh, it's, yeah, yeah.
0: The unit thing fascinates me because uh, there are two. it's relation to resolution and what it's doing on its own terms I think are really interesting. So on its own terms, uh, a lot of people like this because it's like, wow, we're getting the founding of unit, we're getting the history of unit. It's such a cool fan servicey thing or this bit of the show to fill in it's so fascinating are we getting any of that we're getting so we get a scene of robert bathurst and the serpent out in a field talking about uh it's an incredible stroke of luck that you're here because i'm having to found an organization to deal with aliens it's an incredible stroke of luck that you're it's doing the chibnall thing of repeating the same thing over and over (laughs) so we have that um this i mean i don't know how really connected to the mythos of unit that scene feels to me i don't mean in like a law sense i mean in is that scene doing anything that we love about the pert we is it doing anything we love about previous unit stories i don't it wasn't to me maybe there's an argument for it but then the other scenes it's them walking around in the building um there's some kind of reference to the unit dating fan issue uh and there's a kind of brigadier uh mild reference but it's like I I don't really feel this as the origins of UNIT so much. It feels so contextless to me. Like it's someone standing in a field going, yes, I'm founding UNIT. And then it's just kind of walking around (laughs) in this building. And it doesn't really accomplish anything in the episode itself. You could cut all of it except maybe the um, final Kate scene to set up the next week. Yeah, that's all you need. Yeah, and I feel like we wouldn't really be missing anything. So, I don't know. Some fans are obviously deriving a lot of joy and meaning from this. And that's great. Um, I don't know where they're getting it from. Cause for me, it's the contextless field thing. And then it's kind of waltzing around in this pretty empty building. Like the Brigadier thing. Sure. I can get how people feel attached to that. The Revive series has done a couple of beats like that. If they keep working for you, um, that's great. Uh, you know, if you're attached to the Brig, I can see how these keep working for you. But yeah, I didn't feel much from, I just don't feel like the unit stuff was really accomplishing much at all. Uh, not just in terms of the episode's story, but in terms of fan service as well. Like, this didn't feel that fan service y to me. It felt pretty nothing y.
2: And it was everything you would expect a Chibnall era take on the origins of Unit and Unit fan service to be, which is people in the room talking about Unit stuff happening next door, just out of frame, all the interesting Unit stuff happening somewhere else. But you've got some people in the room talking about Unit, therefore it's fan service. And they played an audio clip of Nicholas Courtney, and he's in the credits, so actually, it was like the greatest thing ever. <laughs>
1: And they use the old style uniforms and the old style sign on the the board outside. I, I actually, I have to admit, the lizard part of my brain was quite not happy to see the the old the old school sign because um, I just watched the the three doctors recently and was like, ah, oh, it's the old school sign. Mm. But yeah, I mean, that's not really, you know, a, 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 a very satisfactory pleasure, really. Um, yeah, it's, it's not enough that he has to do a Doctor Origin story; he has to do yeah. a Unit One as well. <laughs>
0: <laughs> and I know people are pleased seeing Kate back. I feel like. Uh, For me, this is maybe a bit undercut that she already returned to live action um, some months ago in the trailers for the Time Fracture uh, immersive thing. Um, That's no fault of Chibnall's. Like, it's still a big deal to bring her back to the show. Uh, But, I mean, next week she might well accomplish a lot, but this week she just kind of failed. Like, the serpent is going to do his stuff and she's like, oh, you're not going to get away with this, and he does. Like, next week he might not, but for this week it felt like a pretty sorry showing for the, all the unit stuff to me and the relation to resolution so I see a lot of people are talking about this like it's a big payoff to resolution or <laughs> ah you shouldn't have judged what resolution did with unit early um, look how it's paid off now even setting aside you know the regular type of thing we say which is you know resolution came out when it did it was an episode that came out when it did of course you can judge everything it did when it came out thing in resolution seems to gag about if not Brexit itself then some type of funding and bureaucracy thing it's the doctor calls up this polly lady uh she says the fate of the entire planet is at stake polly says unit operations have been suspended pending review all unit operations were put on hold following financial disputes and subsequent funding withdrawal by the uk's major international partners that feels like a comic beat in its own right for that context for that episode i don't really see how this episode pays it off like I guess you can read the Great Serpent scene as, oh, uh, it wasn't just a regular uh, Brexit joke or anything. It was actually some dastardly serpent guy um, ferreted around with the funds and so they got defunded that way. I, I don't feel like that's really additive uh, to the resolution scene in a positive or negative way. I don't really feel a great relation to resolution do you know what i mean uh, by this do you guys feel the same i mean it's
2: trying to replace it's trying to replace what seemed like commentary on the world with what's actually just the interference of a a cool alien outsider so again i mean it's the usual sci-fi thing like we don't want to actually have ideas we're just going to have an alien kind of pop in and just manipulate everything i mean it's trying to basically make it cooler in in hindsight in retrospect
1: yeah it feels like um over sort of compensating i mean i i think If you want to really try and stretch it, you could say there's something in there about kind of what initially seemed like sort of, you know, bureaucratic kind of mess or incompetence or sort of short sightedness. Oh, there's actually something more dastardly and sinister going on behind it. You could say that there's a degree of parallel with the division there, um, which, you know, similarly is sort of this 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 powerful organization that's kind of pulling all these strings. But, you know, I don't feel like he's actually saying anything about authority or you know uh, yeah it doesn't really with
0: a note like that i can totally see that uh, in service of this episode but i feel like the way people some people now are kind of smug about oh, those people who dismissed the um the gag and resolution don't you have egg on your face now look it connected to a thing later but it's you know so it's such a great deal of time between resolution and now it's not like we could suspend ourselves and say well we can't really judge this brexit gag and resolution because there is the possibility that one day we will learn more context for this gag and thus our judgment will become different because this can go on forever. It doesn't even need just to go on Chibnall's era. What if another showrunner added more context for this Brexit gag? That happens like Chibnall. uh, Some people say he fixed hell bent by uh, stuff he added in the (laughs) "The timeless children. So things can extend past eras. It can extend in the EU. Of course, big finish will someday do audios referencing all kinds of things in Chibnall's era. I don't, Think it's intentional with a lot of people but I think this idea of you can't judge yet or you don't know what's gonna happen next or you know with stories like flux you can never just say this is only doing that because you're just setting yourself up to look like a fool you have no idea what's in store I feel like the goal explicit or otherwise is just to kind of host us all in this state of suspended criticism where we don't really criticize things because you don't know what's gonna happen next the story goes on forever my friends, you, you know what I mean? I feel like there's this weird kind of discourse uh, where they get this smugness of things connecting or not because it's like invalidating any sort of judgment because Doctor Who is going on forever. Therefore, something might always get more context. So more fool you for being negative about something now.
1: Yeah, absolutely. It feels like, yeah, trying to quieten criticism by, you know, just kind of absolute subservience to kind of consuming the product over and over for forevermore. Yeah it's it's
2: it's grim i think anyone in after resolution aired i think anyone could have guessed that eventually unit would have some big epic return which chib was thinking of doing at some point in the future and now it's like whatever however many years later and that's happened like big whoop. like it's it's just it, it really is just like the the most obvious thing happened and people are like oh my god this means it was actually brilliant in hindsight and no no it doesn't
0: so i think we have to note that chibnall did address the sort of thing we're talking about here directly in a behind the scenes video this week. Let's hear that.
1: Unit in episode 5. Oh, I really? I was so looking forward to bringing Unit back and we've been sort of planning this for a while because, you know, the worst thing that can happen to it is it is it's been under threat and obviously it had been closed down in resolution it was very deliberately so we could bring it back later on and it would feel like a what has happened to Unit and is the world safe without Unit.
0: What gets me with that ...is that it feels a lot to me like we closed it down so we could open it again. You know, we made it go away so we could bring it back. Like, I don't really feel the drama or the story in that you took something away so you could bring it back later. I don't... that's not much of a story to me. Series 11 took away continuity and returning monsters and all that sort of thing. And that did produce something, in my opinion, because that was a really sustained stretch of storytelling. Ten whole episodes that did other things in place of returning elements... Uh, and if you were a returning fan from the previous series that would feel different to you that the show wasn't using daleks or wasn't using any of this past stuff anymore and it was doing other things in place of that whether you'd like or dislike series 11 it really did do something with not having returning continuity i think it's the only season of the revived series to really test that out and play with that idea now in that behind the scenes thing Chibnall says the idea with this unit thing was and it would feel like what has happened to unit and is the world safe without unit But before Resolution, we just had Series 11. We just had those 10 episodes I'm talking about, those episodes free of continuity. So before Chibnall got rid of Unit, we just had around eight and a half hours of the show having no Unit with no fuss at all. If we think in terms of audiences here, Series 11's premiere got huge ratings. It was very much promoted as a series anyone could hop on board with. So let's think of two kinds of audiences, two kinds of audience members. One that started watching Doctor Who with Series 11, and another that had seen Doctor Who before, and so they were on some level familiar with UNIT. For the Series 11 joiner, they just had an entire series where UNIT didn't exist, then one special where it's quickly mentioned in the context of a gag of the Doctor expecting help and backup, but the organisation she's relied on for help before, that she sees as vital protection for Earth having been put on hold in like a bureaucracy type gag, and then they get a whole other series, Series 12, where UNIT is mentioned once. When Stephen Fry's character in Spyfall mentions there are multiple organizations that deal with aliens. So for this type of new viewer, I don't think Chibnall's idea of closing down UNIT very deliberately so the viewer feels is the world safe without UNIT, I don't think that makes much sense at all. They just had a series where they never heard of UNIT, then a gag about UNIT's dismissal, then a whole other series in which, in the wake of the dismissal, it's mentioned only once. Now let's think of the other type of audience member, the ones familiar with UNIT, While Peter Capaldi's last story referenced the Brigadier character, and elsewhere in 2017, the Pyramid at the End of the World episode, uh, well, it featured the United Nations, but it only briefly mentioned Unit in one line about uh, checking watch lists. 2016's The Return of Doctor Mysterio had just one line about Unit cleaning up the mess at the end of the story, although it had a kind of superhero-esque plot, very in keeping with the story, about an infiltrating alien and Unit calling Osgood. So it was actually 2015, six years ago, That featured unit in any significant capacity in the zygon stories from series 9 now this isn't the 1970s anymore unit aren't a regular feature of doctor who anymore i would say that series 11 not mentioning unit it's not even necessarily feeling like part of the intentional abandonment of continuity in 2018 so much as it just feels like business as usual considering series 10 only mentioned them once in a very minor way So UNIT aren't a large and regular feature of the series. There are plenty of Doctor Who series without them, or only mentioning them in very small ways. And then Series 12, the series set after the gag about them being dissolved. It only mentions them once. So I don't see how Chibnall's idea of very deliberately shutting them down so it would feel like what has happened to UNIT, is the world safe without UNIT? I don't see how that holds much water. Like so much of the current run, it just feels flat to me and not much like a story or like drama. UNIT's return in this episode being even... I don't even know if I want to say superficial, because... I don't see how the field scene really taps into anything people like or remember about Unit at all, aesthetically or superficially or otherwise. Uh, This being what it was just exacerbates this weird non-story sense of the series to me. Like, for the fans that love Kate Stewart and were excited to see her in the teaser at the end of episode 4 that should be coming back for this one, was this what they wanted? For her to limply threaten an alien maliciously inside Unit, accomplish nothing with those threats, and then... I literally get a scene of her just slinking back home after a day of failure. I can't tell what Chibnall is trying to achieve with these sorts of scenes that seem so dramatically and narratively confusing to me. Kate tells the evil alien, I can see you're evil, you better stop being evil, he effectively says, nah, and that's it for this episode, she just goes home. I mean, I assume next episode will delve into what she accomplished over the years since then, but it's just baffling to me in context of an episode heralded as Unit's return and that Chibnall seemed delighted about being fanservicey about Unit. Another interesting aspect of all this is that the scene of Kate limply telling the serpent off is set in 2017, as the episode announces, which I guess you could see as retconning in a reason UNIT weren't a feature of the show post-Series 9, aka 2015 much, but obviously that doesn't really make sense, since UNIT are very regularly not much of a feature on the show at all, so them not being around much after Series 9 hardly needed fixing or explaining. It does add a new context to them not being around in resolution, but to what end. Like us three were just discussing the resolution gag operated as it did in that story and in the time it transmitted and this recontextualization doesn't to me really feel transformative or earth shattering. The time gap between 2017 and 2021 does give space in the show's fiction for the next episode to develop out a story about what Kate did in the years she went dark but I continue to find it strange that the episode returning unit either positioned them really ineffectively like with Kate or positioned them in ways that seemed so disconnected with what anyone really likes about unit, like the field scene. Most of all, I'm just baffled by Chimnall's explanations for that gag that he did about them closing years ago, and it just speaks to the weird approach to drama and narrative I think this era often exhibits in general. And I think, in a way, Aswok herself kind of comments on this sort of thing uh, unintentionally. When the Doctor starts coming up with all these scenarios that might recontextualize uh, the Doctor as a child being outside the purple timeless portal, Aswok mockingly says, What if, what if, what if? Like you can spin out an infinity of possible interpretations or contexts for something, but that's not really a story or meaningful in the moment. And I guess it's that early judgment thing again. It's abstracting out the idea of context or continuation coming in the future to a point that forever can be in the future, forever possibilities that say little about the current moment.
1: I felt, just this very quick note, I just felt amused when she said, um, we must clear up after ourselves, because it sort of felt almost, and probably isn't, but it felt almost (laughs) like a sort of meta comment on, oh, Chibnall has to (laughs) clear the decks of all kind of his... (laughs) um, you know, garbled, garbled lore and continuity before RTD comes in and takes over. When you know, maybe that will be what happens. There's some sort of you know massive universe reset, and sort of all past continuity is kind of wiped, and everything is completely a blank slate uh, for 2023. Who knows? But yeah, that that tickled me.
2: Um, just on the note of the timeless portal thing coming up, uh, what do you guys think of the speculation that the Doctor um, suggesting that she may not have actually come through the portal, but maybe she was left there? Do you think that increases the uh, possibility that she's Bell's child? Because <laughs> I've seen a little more speculation about that after the episode. Do you think that's um, <sighs> more likely or less likely to be bullshit? It, it,
1: it does feel like the degree of kind of emphasis that's been placed on sort of you know Bell's. Story and you know, me and 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 kind of oh, she's got a child and she's lovely and she's trying to find her. The fact that that's been such a major plot point, it does feel very much like, yeah, Chekhov's Chekhov's as yet unborn child, we could say. Um, you know, and and yeah, that that obviously sort of makes my heart sink in, in despair, especially if it goes in the direction that I fear that you know, we'll sort of have the. The, the awful abusive adoptive mother and the really good, uh, you know, compassionate yeah. biological mother, <laughs> which obviously is is a huge pitfall we might end up going into.
0: I don't mean this in a cheap shot way, but I take regular story storytelling conventions like Chekhov's Gun less seriously uh, with Chibnall's Who, especially this series, just because I think mm. uh, he's unpredictable in that he often will be so disparate with his storytelling. He often won't connect things that feel like they're going to connect, so... That's true. I I feel kind of um, at sea with trying to predict anything because I find it's like I lack the tools to do so. This story is told in a very strange way. In a more traditional Doctor Who series, I'd feel like they're building up something like what we're describing with Doctor and her possible parents, but you never know how Chibnall's going to tell a story, so...
1: It certainly seems like she's... The, the, the watch is going to open next week and, you know, we yeah. will get some form of probably further monologuing or, or, or you know, Mindscape nonsense. Um, that issues, we can to see. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> we can be sure of that. Um, yeah, just uh, on kind of the um, the Doctor's origins, and I suppose and you mentioned the sort of Timeless Child, and obviously we have the flashback here. Um, i I wonder what you guys thought of the kind of the, yeah, the debate over Tektoon's actions there, because... There's this kind of um, clash over whether it was rescue versus taking something that didn't belong um, and you know they sort of play it as she's this abusive kind of baddie who you know um, took took some took a child that she had no right to and this was a sort of you know terrible interfering colonialist impulse or whatever um, but I just feel... None of this, none of this, fundamentally works for me because the child is a complete cipher. The child, we know, we have none. Yeah. We have no idea about the child's um, desires, wishes. You know, we have no idea what the child thought or, or felt before the mind wipe, and uh, the doctor doesn't know. Um, so, yeah, there's just no in- investment there. I-, I feel.
0: Yeah, it's a, it's a bit of a tea leaves thing, uh, with this era and this writer. I think there are some writers who I feel we will be more predisposed to see a kind of intent like that into, uh, because they might have a pattern of storytelling in a certain way. They might have these emotional through lines we talked about, which make the kind of bent of a story more obvious. With Chibnall, like you're saying, The Timeless Child is such a cipher that I feel like plenty of us can read stuff into it, but we're going to be doing more projection than we might normally do with episodes from other eras or other shows. And that doesn't make those readings not interesting or not uh, good or worth reading or anything but i feel like when people read these big uh anti-colonialist readings or otherwise you know there are people that can read this in uh (laughs) very surprising and starkly different ways Mm. i feel like it's very much coming from them and not coming from what the show is giving because i feel like the show is giving so little the show is never going to give you this stuff to make it incontrovertible to do that reading but it's all so vague and such a cipher and such a mishmash that it's it's we've talked about this in previous weeks it's kind of applying this secondary skin onto the show so interpreting the morality of Tek Yoon and the Timeless Child and all that stuff I feel like it's talking more about us as fans and our thoughts and projections mm-hmm. than it is Chibnall because I don't feel like he's putting as much into it as we as fans are perhaps
2: linking that to the disparateness of Chibnall's writing Oh, just, just one thing like uh, on top of the Tectarian and the Timeless Child thing, we do get Tectarian's motivations for the other stuff. Like when she describes the Division's actions, it, there is an there is an overt kind of colonialist overtone there, like helping yeah. inferior civilizations and stuff. But that is placed at this separate thing while rescuing the Timeless Child. You know, in inverted commas is kind of this whole thing unto itself. And you get these back and forth with Tectarian and the Doctor, like, "Oh, morality is a flaw, or morality is a strength." It, <laughs> it's like it, it's just there. I think just to, to get the ambience of having a moral debate in the episode rather than for any actual clearly thought-out, articulated point, comment. And when it comes to the time of the child, obviously the Doctor doesn't know if Tecteum was right or wrong to do any of this, she doesn't remember, she just got what-ifs. So it's like there's no debate that can actually happen. There's just nothing there, it's nothing.
1: And w- one thing I thought was kind of potentially interesting or sort of could go in quite an interesting direction, even if it was done in a very kind of clichéd way, was the um, Tecteum sort of saying, well, don't you do the same thing? Yeah, You know, the way that you pick it. you pick up, you know, these stragglers kind of all around the universe and you sort of take them with you. And it's like, yeah, OK, there's a degree of, of interest there, even if it's kind of couched in the terms of, you know, very, very, very typical sort of, are we not the same, house. you and I? Uh, <laughs> he, yeah, with house, yeah, Whit house, yeah. yeah he, hero and villain sort of, you know, cliche. Stuff. Um, and, you know, there's kind of interesting in the sense that um, it, it posits almost that, yeah, there's this kind of mirroring of this abusive past or abusive relationship that sort of runs like a stick of rock through every Doctor-Companion relationship ever, which obviously is incredibly bleak, um, if, you know, we are invited to treat this seriously, Um, the Doctor just sort of replies with, we are not the same. Um, Which, you know, in one sense, I kind of like, because it's sort of the opposite of of the journey's end beat, you know, where where the Tenth Doctor (laughs) sort of inexplicably can't refute what Davros is saying. Um, So in one sense, I kind of like that. She was just like, no. But on the other hand, there's not really any depth to it, because it feels like, it, it's kind of raising the question of kind of, oh are we challenging the Doctor here? But then it doesn't really challenge her, but neither does it really confirm it. So it just kind of ums and ahs. And it, yeah, it's a hollow simulacrum of a sort of moral debate. Exactly.
2: The great irony of that, the Doctor insisting she's not the same as Tek is that with 13, you know, she's the mind-wipe-happy Doctor. So she's arguably closer to Tek Tayun and the Division in terms of her willingness to just, like, screw with people and wipe their memories and shit than perhaps some previous Doctors have been. So yeah, it's like it's like there's a moral challenge you could make but Chibnall, I think is not really interested in making it. He just th- wants the yeah. character to say it so it sounds smart and deep.
0: On that note, I think um another big equivocation is the whole law thing, the space cop thing. Uh The Division is getting set up like in this way of, oh, they were trying to control the universe. How awful. The Doctor was this injection of good into the universe and that's why they want to stop her or move her or whatever. Um, That's all hero villain stuff. That more or less works. But from all these previous episodes in this era, we constantly get the Doctor characterised as a cop. You know, uh, she gets incensed when people violate laws. This is one of the most consistent parts of her character is this adherence... To laws and wanting people to follow the rules, sorting out fair play throughout the universe is her kind of thesis. So, even in her exchanges with Tectayun, we get stuff like, "I don't think having weeping angels do your dirty work counts as magnificent." What the, what, who, who cares that they're using weeping <laughs> angels? They use all sorts of different species. What that's not that's nothing to do with what they're actually doing, or to do with her past, or all this stuff that actually matters uh, to their relationship. It's. Uh, uh, they're interfered in, contraven- in contravening all Time Lord directives. It's like... Oh, gosh. It's funny yeah. because, lo- like you're saying, Tom, there is totally stuff here where you it's kind of a seed of potentially interesting story, equivocating the two of them. But from the previous two series, we know that this is just how our Doctor is characterized all the time. You know, uh, Kablam was probably the big example where people really started noticing it. Uh, so, I don't feel like... Chibnall's going to double back on himself and undercut this and do like this great character breakdown of the Doctor because I think um, it is Tech Dayan does it in a bad way. The Doctor does it in a good way. We are not the same. It's shallow and it's not doing something which could be interesting but I think it's because of this law cop thing Chibnall has uh, with his writing in general
2: that fucking line where the Doctor was like you were in contravention of all Time Lord directives like can we just maybe just briefly remind ourselves that those very Time Lord directives about non-interference were what had the Time Lords kidnap the Doctor and mind wipe Jamie and Zoe in their first story yeah. right that was that was like the, the Doctor caring about those Time Lord directives all of a sudden of non-interference I mean it's just it's just like a total clangor it just kind of betrayal in terms of the of her character's, characters ethos. makes no sense yeah, yeah. exactly yeah. Like, why the hell would she suddenly bleat about that and again it's it's like I think a long time ago we had this idea that there weren't really tone meetings or any sort of idea, any sort of um, attempts to keep things coherent and internally consistent in *Chibnall Who*. And this is just such a big sign of that because I mean you could cut that line, you could just get rid of it and have just things be less messy. But it's just in there, and because no one's thinking about anything, and like the the like Jodie portrays that line as like really def- like indignant like oh my god it was in contravention of time lords like it couldn't you know yes, yes another doctor might have played yeah. that as a yeah another doctor might have played that as kind of a wry remark mm, i see you were contravening time lord directives and mm, how hypocritical of you but no it, it's just and again like no one's thinking about this oh it's just so frustrating it's just a vortex of sludge i, I can
0: totally in my mind hear a mcgann line reading that undercuts yeah. it and plays it slyly and it would be such an interesting beat then but no, yeah. that's not what we get. And about. kind of,
1: and yeah, it's almost like taunting Tecto as saying, oh, well, even according to your own ethos, yeah. you're, you're messing up. Yeah, yeah.
0: This, this is why, um, this is a bit of a minefield. It's why uh, in 2018, I was much more amenable to the kind of view that um, Jodie Whittaker is doing the best with what she's got. There's no issues with her. This is all on any problems with the show ...are on the producer end... Stevens and Chibnall... ...and maybe to an extent... ...some of the aesthetic stuff... ...like Sagan... ...that are causing issues... ...uh... ...in her final series... ...I don't feel... ...that view is... ...as solid anymore... ...I feel like... ...there are choices... ...she is making... ...which I don't think... ...are serving the scripts... ...such as they are... ...in the best way all the time... Huh. ...like... ...um... ...or do we want to talk about... ...in the behind the scenes... ...for Once Upon Time we saw Jodie play a different Doctor. Like, she did the physicality of of uh, the Ruth Doctor, you know, which very much shows that she's choosing to portray her own Doctor in a kind of diminutive way um, with this hunched physicality, this more kind of... It's like the passivity uh, we talk about with her a lot. So, she's making character choices in her acting. You know, she has loads of agency here. She's the actor. Chibnall is, is the showrunner, and so he's... The top dog in that sense but i don't like writing off the agency of jody and what she's doing in this era because i feel like that's kind of weird to like um mm. i don't think you can champion jody by saying she doesn't have the power here you know <laughs> she's she's just doing what the scripts say i feel like that's really disrespecting her as an actor i feel like it's like we've talked about taking the flux episodes on their own terms themselves i feel like taking her acting on its own t- terms and respecting her as a professional is to kind of sometimes say I'm not really vibing with the choices she makes in some scenes. And so, her line reading in that scene disappoints me because I think it doesn't imbue this scene with meaning that it easily could have had uh, with a different reading.
2: I mean, the the actor for the Doctor and the showrunner—they collude together on the personality of the Doctor. That's been the case for, for ages. Yeah. You know, so like, it, it's really just, you know, the the, the idea that the actor would ever like not have agency. I mean, it reminds me of the shit when Capaldi was the Doctor. People would say, "Oh my God, Moffat is ruining Capaldi! I, I can't <laughs> believe <Moffat and laughs> Capaldi do all these things."
1: <laughs> like, it's just—it's complete insanity. As though he you know? had no input. Yes. Yeah. Yeah.
0: <laughs> Him of all uh, Doctors too. It's wild. Mm-hmm. I, I, just one final point on that is I just find it so weird that it's such a current through this whole era is this kind of passing the buck of like uh, it's, it's not the episode's fault because something's going to happen in a later episode. It's not the actor's fault because the showrunner's doing this. It's not the showrunner's fault because you're comparing <laughs> them to another showrunner. There's like this bizarre little circle of um, uh, like passing things off to somewhere else constantly. I just find it very, very weird for this to be so prevalent in some fandom circles, I think it's very indicative of some things. And I think it, they're very weird things.
1: I was going to ask, um, obviously to talk to quite a lot about the Prentice and unit stuff and the tech to stuff. And what did you guys make of the kind of <laughs> Yaz, Dan and Jericho this week and their whole storyline? Cause I, I think some people seem to really like this. Um, well, as usual, I mean, there's people who like it every week, but there seem to be quite a lot of, of happiness going around, of kind of all the you know doing all this kind of fun Indiana Jones stuff, and you know that's fun, and and look how much of a sort of fun relationship they have. I don't know, yeah, it, yeah.
2: I mean, it was the only thing in the episode with a vague Doctor Who vibe in terms of characters going mm. on an adventure, even if that would, adventure was incredibly stupid, pointless, and slightly racist. <laughs> you know? Yeah, exactly. The, I mean, that's, that's not to achieve. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yes. yeah,
0: like oh,
2: it's just. <laughs> Just one other thing on that front, Um, like when Yaz is looking, when Yaz is finding the offering pot in the opening Indiana Jones kind of tomb raiding scene, I love how there was this really like clearly inserted lines where Yaz is like, we have to make sure we return it afterwards because otherwise (laughs) it would be theft, because I think that's the thing that Chib has sometimes done, like put in something to to signify an idea of like social consciousness, like anti-colonialism yeah, yeah, return stuff from don't steal stuff from foreign cultures and stuff, yeah and it's just there, but like the rest of the episode is so busy doing its weirdly xenophobic messages and shit that it just Barely really comes off at all, you know. it's And again, it's like we're calling the Dalek a refugee in resolution. Like, what the? Well, f- is, is that we'll a? Yeah, we? Yeah. Yeah. we get that
1: here, don't we? We get that the displaced yeah. creatures who need a home, <laughs> somewhere to take over. It's oh. like, well, welcome to you know, Pretty Patel's
0: Doctor Who. <laughs> oh my god. <laughs> yeah. So, so yeah. Uh, wiped out. There will be displaced creatures who need a home, somewhere to take over. It's. It, it, it is funny how all the cop stuff does kind of cohere maybe by accident, like this this mm. kind of profiling, um, this this xenophobia. It's so... I'm used to it because this doctor has had so many beats where I feel morally repelled by them, but it's so gross. You remember um, Lawrence Miles's blog post on um, the Unquiet Dead back in the day that exploded? Yes. <laughs> so, so many things. I don't know if anyone has like the the energy... To do anything like that anymore. Especially because this era has already done beats like that. But it's just so, so gross. I hate that. it's, And it's ridiculous that we get like these ADR to like, oh, Yaz is going to replace it. You know, we're going to stay socially conscious in that regard. And then like this huge blind spots in like Spyfall 2 things or this thing. It's just, it, it makes me feel like such a remove from the era. Because, you know, there are, there are areas that I might find more boring than others. But... It, It's not as often I get, I mean, some eras have stuff like this too, but like this outright repugnant uh, philosophies pop up now and again. And I don't don't really see any argument to um, dismiss them. Like the only arguments I see that really try to undo it is just saying you're taking it too seriously, which is, you know, crap. So, yeah, just a gross beat.
2: They're
1: aliens, not humans. (laughs) <laughs> and you get you get bell saying some race you are as well Oh yeah. Mm. which is a bit cringe to say the least
0: yeah the other thing with the yaz jericho uh, who's y- dan um subplot <laughs> <laughs> i loved him. how it was just a brief lapse um <laughs> is that i like the idea of yaz being kind of the leader and being doctoring mm. i like what that's doing with their character and it's fun to see her in a control i liked a few of her line readings actually she had some fun ones with the other two guys but the basis of it is still them just kind of doing what the doctor said to on the hologram thing which kind of brings us back to she's just like the doctor's lapdog, and she can only do you know what would the doctor do um the doctors like this it's not a very proactive storyline i wish there could have been some form of it where she's kind of proactively puzzled out what they need to do where they need to go I mean she's finding the locations but the basis of this is still like a mission from the Doctor which isn't really her acting as a Doctory figure to me if that makes sense
2: and note that we've skipped three years of her fucking life for her to get to this point where she's suddenly like the super competent leader figure who can be all kind of quasi-independent and stuff like it it really is just such such a disservice to the idea of actually developing a character because people are people are always like oh my god yeah Yaz is going to develop over time and stuff and now we've just had this whole time skip and she's not not someone else, so to speak, but, like, they've just conveniently sort of uh, given her some more Doctor traits in the interim, and v- yeah. it just feels very
1: cheap. Yeah, I mean, I enjoy... Yeah, on a sort of purely basic level, I enjoy the sort of fun setup of Yaz as the competent adventurer, yeah. these, these two bumbling men as her companions. That's quite fun, and, and yeah. you know, in, in the moment, you know, that's fun to watch. But, yeah, like you say, she's just eternally bumping up against, you know, if you like, the sort of glass ceiling that stops companions from kind of ever-reaching doctorhood sort of yeah. as, the, as the sort of you know as the level above which you know we've had an entire era that was all about deconstructing
0: the, you know <laughs>
1: the sort of doctor companion relationship and making it much more of a level playing field i don't know four. if he
0: watched series 9 because he did miss the bubble thing <laughs>
1: that's true yeah he probably didn't uh, <laughs> but yeah it, it just feels so dispiriting after that um as you say
2: we got the Thasmin scene at least that's <laughs> true on the Yaz front yeah. that sort of probably the most phasminist scene ever
1: do you guys think it counts as queer baiting by this point, or?
0: <laughs> I I mean I feel like a lot of Thasman discussion I think forgets that the first episode it really came up and did bring it up as an actual possibility. The show has never mm. acted like them going out is something that can't even be entertained. Yaz's mum outright yep. asks, you know, are you an item? Uh, they do say no, but I feel like the queer baiting thing is complicated by the fact that it's not like an impossibility. It's something the show has raised, even if to say no to.
1: Yeah, and as you guys hinted at earlier, there's this parallel with um, the other, well, the other sort of romantic couple of the episode of Bell and yeah and Vinder in 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 a sort of similar way to the way that they were Yaz and the Doctor kind of paralleled in um Diodati, you know, with was it was it Claire and Byron, yeah, um, you know, my person is a bit different or whatever it was. So there's a bit of that kind of at least sort of gesturing in that area for sure. Yeah.
2: It makes you wish that they'd been write, They'd been trying to write Yaz and the Doctor this way for the past three years, rather than just having these little nods to it, like, at the last minute, almost. Mm. It's like... Because, like, the scene where Yaz is actually kind of watching that video of the Doctor and kind of being... kind of mooning over it a little bit, like, I felt like there was an emotional core to Yaz, like, longings, desires and stuff that weren't... that we haven't really had much of like i felt like there was a bit of an emotional reality that you might get with past showrunners yeah. whereas with here that's been virtually absent for most of this era
1: yeah there's an interiority there which she yeah very exactly. has. i liked
0: what mandic yeah. was doing um yeah she was she was given a good go of it there
1: i was going to mention as well that i suppose i don't know if this yeah this is kind of part of the dan yaz and jericho plot is um joseph williamson coming back to play uh, <laughs> yeah. crazy victorian man well he's pre-victorian isn't he but um I, I kind of like him as well. I probably should have added him in, in, in the list of things I liked at the beginning when I was mentioning Carvanista, because he and Carvanista kind of have something in common, which is that they, uh, yeah, I just like the idea that kind of Carvanista and Jay Williamson are sort of, you know, these, these characters who are constantly frustrated by the plot and sort of what's going on. And, and the, <laughs> this is quite fun to watch because you can relate to them. Um, yeah. Yeah, it's just amusing, And I quite like the guy's line readings as well, even though it's kind of the same mode every time. Um, Steve Oram, sort of as, as the character, um, yeah. It's, I just kind of enjoy it because it's just a bit bananas.
2: I think the guy, like, rambling around and just shouting at the characters and just kind of being kind of crazy, it it reminds me of when Flux was kaleidoscopic and interesting yeah. in vague ways, just having lots of crazy stuff happen. It, it's that sense of when you, so much of the rest of the story is kind of getting sucked down into these bland Sontaran invasion plot lines and unit and shit. You know, it's nice to have someone who's still just wandering around being crazy and eccentric. The mm.
0: Sontaran thing is interesting in that it's such a... It actually totally surprised me. I never would have thought this finale would come back to having the villains dispatched in Episode 2 be the issue again. I'm not I'm not even meaning this as a cheap shot or anything like that. It's one of the only times fucks absolutely bowled me over with a surprise. I was expecting the Cybermasters or the Daleks or someone to show up when the villain was getting built up at the end, but no, the Serpent is working with the Sontarans <laughs> and it's the Sontars. I'm. I'm not laughing jeeringly at it. Like it's somewhat joyful. Like I didn't expect that. I think it's anticlimactic for sure, Uh, but it is a surprise, which is fun.
1: I've I've seen some suggestions. I don't know if you guys think this could turn out to be true. This might be a bit too clever. I don't know. But um, the the, sort of the Lupari Carvanista plot, um, going on with with Bell here, um, is actually taking place, sort of between episodes one and two. From his perspective, um, within the sort of three minutes of the craft shield covering Earth, there's this one bit where there's a there's a there's a glitch or you know, one ship isn't there, there's a gap. Um he brings Bell to fulfill the gap, and in that time, that's what allows the Sontyrens in to invade in episode two, and that's how they get in. Now, I've no idea if that's going to end up being the case.
0: Yeah, that would be but- interesting. That's a neat kind of why. I mean I don't really know why you do yeah. that, but
1: yeah plausibly i i don't know
0: if they want to sure that's a fun little <laughs> continuity thing yeah
1: i mean again expecting things to just connect
2: together in a sensible way is probably maybe expecting a bit too much
1: indeed it's a bit of a mugs game
0: yeah talking of surprises or come downs or odd ways to do things like the santarans being centric to the finale this multiverse stuff so We get the big visual of like the division tree uh, seed ship or seed vault or whatever in... Well, it's not really space, is it? Between the two universes, universe one, universe two. uh, We get all this. I'm not the type to be like, hey, over 10 years ago, the show did this. So it's a bit silly you're doing this now. I don't think that Russell T Davies already did the void and parallel universes and all that makes Chibnall doing it in a different way bad at all but I do think it I think the concept of a multiverse and the build-up to it is kind of very done dramatically and maybe is a bigger deal than it might come across to some audiences like at the end of the day what we're seeing here is we got our universe and there's another one right there how many sci-fi viewers is this going to be like a huge thing too um assuming they haven't seen Series 2, maybe they started the show with Series 11, but still, and especially in this day and age, even the terminology of multiverse rather than parallel universes or whatever, it feels very... It's like how Chibnall and Stevens invoke the Disney Plus shows, the Marvel shows. It feels reflective of the outside era more than... I hate doing this. (laughs) When Russell T. Davies did it, I felt like it was more kind of his flower, blossoming out. And maybe that's me being ignorant of other genre stuff going on at the time, perhaps, although I was watching it uh, contemporary back in the day.
1: No, I agree.
0: But, yeah, it's like uh, some of the stuff Oliver was bringing up with um, the Marvel shows and whatnot. This feels kind of informed by the outside, which isn't necessarily a bad thing, but I feel like the show used to be informing the outside. Like, Primeval and uh, one of those Robin Hood shows uh, and the Merlin show you know, come off the back of what RTD accomplished on television. And Stephen Moffat definitely had influence over a bunch of things uh, through Sherlock and through his Doctor Who primarily. The sh- Doctor Who now, if it's kind of reflecting culture back, uh, like it's being influenced by culture rather than influencing culture, that's an interesting difference. But it does make stuff like we've got a multiverse, to me just feel not like a big deal at all
2: kind of a me too thing like hey look at us we're doing it too the thing is something an important difference i noticed is that when rtd had his whole um parallel universe storyline in series two um that was kind of basically just like a little explanation to justify what they're actually doing which is introducing rose's dad is alive you know in this other realm so like the emotional story with rose is actually like the the key and the multiverse stuff is just like a, a way to make that happen uh, whereas here, like this whole this, this this idea of a multiverse is kind of very portentously vaunted for its own sake. We get a big special effect saying, "Look, it's another universe of mystery and countless more beyond." It, it very much feels like that idea of kind of vaunting the idea of a universe multiverse. For you know its own what sake.
0: it's you know what it's like. The pointlessness and the weightlessness of it is exactly the same as the timeless children, which the reveal is like, you know, the Doctor. There can be infinite doctors. There can be doctors that look different. There can be doctors that have all sorts of different adventures, which is exactly the setup of the show already. That's how the show already functioned. Mm. We can regenerate and get new doctors. Sticking them in the past instead of the future, I don't think accomplishes anything. If, if anything, it narrows it down even more because it's saying there are more doctors in the past and they were cops. So they have a little narrower vision of the stories they That's can right, tell.
1: Yes, people say, you know, oh, it means you can count you know, Schalke or, you know, um, The Curse of Fatal Death, Doctors, or you can count, you know, everybody's own fanfic series on YouTube. But in practice, it doesn't mean that at all, because, no. as you say, it's n- l- sort of limited very narrowly by the specific definition of they were working for the division, etc., etc. et, cetera, et cetera. Um, So, you know, none of those really fit what he's saying there.
0: Yeah. And I feel a similar thing with a parallel university, like, what does this accomplish? There's another universe where there's space and planets and all these different adventures the Doctor could have. We, the universe is endless in the first one. Where it can be we can make up as many new alien planets, as many different laws of physics in different galaxies. We can do endless amounts of that. There's no finite amount of Doctor Who stories to tell in Universe One. So it's I feel like a lot of this era does things where it's like we've opened the canvas, you know, to infinity, but it's like you haven't you've either just done the status quo we already had or you've shrunk it a little bit. So, yeah. And it's also, I think there's a factor in flux of like, if you're doing a serialized sci-fi story dealing with big sci-fi world-building concepts, a tricky thing is anything can happen. Like you can absolutely say, oh, we're going to the second universe now. Oh, these avatars of space hate time or vice versa and they're going to do this now. Oh, there's these particles that eat people now. And I think it's hard to get attached to some of that because you can literally do any... You can make up any shit like that. It doesn't matter. Um, We'll go along for the ride because it's Doctor Who. You can do anything. You can make up the second universe. You can make the Doctor not a Time Lord natively or whatever. Like, you can change anything you want. Sometimes it's hard to grab hold of it if there's no emotional through line, like we said. And because you keep changing things or doing different concepts... It can be fun especially towards the start of series where it's novel to introduce all these things but yeah I feel like introducing a second universe doesn't feel dramatic to me for all these kinds of reasons we're talking about
2: again it's all well and good to do um, particle effects and shit but if you don't have actual ideas like interesting for goddamn story ideas, dramatic ideas, characters that are interesting, then nothing you do matters. It's that simple. No amount yeah. of kind of sci-fi trappings can make something interesting if there is no core story or core drama to get interested in.
0: It's, again, it's people do this thing where they abstract it out. One day there will be a story. You know, one day this huh. will make sense. I saw uh, some people have brought up the great thing about doing this second universe is Of course, this is connected to Russell T. Davies' comments from early in the year about Doctor Who could support a Marvel-esque universe of content. Uh, You know, adding a parallel universe lets us do all these new uh, things. It provides a huge canvas for more shows. They're clearly in cahoots. You know, it's it's not seeing storylines or characters as the basis for spinoffs or for episodes in the main show itself. It's just this abstract kind of idea of, we need more space. You know, when there's more space, we can have more things, uh, which is just such nonsense.
2: Yeah, Division spin off, guys. Division spin off.
0: Yeah. The last. Th- no sci fi series needs l- <laughs> just like more out of space to do something in. It's such a weird idea to me.
1: This is quite a small thing, really, because they didn't really have much of a role this week. But just you mentioning all this stuff about kind of space, just maybe think of. Um... I'm just still quite baffled by what's going on with Swarm and Azure and, you know, kind of US mm. space, we are time. And, you know, we talked about this quite a lot already this week and pre- previous weeks so of kind of the different particles and the different, you know, <laughs> the flux of the time force and what's what. And this time it seemed to... The logic seems to be that they can destroy physical corporeal objects, people, and that somehow the destruction of space... Or, you know, molecules occupying uh, <laughs> space seems to increase the power of the time force. Have I got that right? It seems to be what they said. Yeah, um,
2: they uh, need things. things.
1: Yeah.
2: <laughs> um, which begs the question why so, they haven't just like eaten everything. Like, why do they need to. Why do they. I, I don't know.
0: A swarm and Azura have been quite uh from the story since episode three, which I'm not that happy about. Um, yeah, the other particles and then the serpent and now the Santarans. We're losing sense of them a bit. And it's a shame because I feel like they were one of the things in the series that was uh, genuinely working.
2: And now they've come back, they've killed off Tectoyoun, and now they're just... Now they're like now they're in this weird position because they've got the whole Doctor's fob watch and stuff. Presumably they're going to open it and show the Doctor her memories and shit. And it's like now their job is somehow to make the expedition about the Doctor happen rather than do their own thing. So it's like they've been slotted into a role that doesn't really feel made for them. I mean, like, well, to to the degree that anything is made for anything in Shibu. But so it just, but I mean, uh, yeah, it, it's it feels like we've had that kind of diminution of Swarm and Azure, but now they're back on the top and it doesn't quite feel the same. <laughs> like, I, I want the old Swarm and Azure back where <laughs> things were fun.
0: It's, yeah, the exposition that we're doubtless going to get. Yes, I'm predicting that. I can totally tell we're going to get exposition next week. This is how things work. Um... This episode started. I was amused by this because we were talking about this kind of thing last week. It started. It started with all this unspooling exposition. The Doctor talking to herself, talking to the Weeping Angels, oh, gosh. asking questions, you know, out loud to uh, to yeah. to, the, to the area, uh, openly questioning what the angelification was. We quickly got deangelified, like we were talking about last week. It was just funny <laughs> um, the way that yeah. it did play out, like uh, we were talking about, even down to the angel is just being used quickly as transport and that was the cliffhanger all this buzz about the cliffhanger last week um, and yeah it unfolds like we thought it would because of patterns in the show before which do tell you a lot about what's going to come next
2: that scene was fucking terrible by the way
1: just so bad (laughs) just yeah it's another one of those things where she has to walk through a location talking to herself it's actually quite like the beginning of Spyfall 2 isn't it? Um, more or less functionally the same thing I suppose, you know, the angels add a certain weight to it. But again, you know, it is kind of hilarious and depressing that sort of any attempt to, you know, make the angels more triumphant or victorious or powerful or whatever is just undercut by. Yeah, she she, she literally just wakes up in the first few seconds. I was going to say, it's almost like he thought that um, sort of taking the character off the board and seeing how others fare in her absence was done um, too satisfyingly in Revolution of the Taleks, even though I feel the opposite. Um, so he set out to sort of you know, rectify that here and kind of get her out of it even more quickly. Yeah, it's uh, just baffling.
2: The image of the Doctor in that Sea of Angels with kind of the colour grading and stuff, like, it was a cool image, and it's just mm. a shame that Chibnall felt he needed to have the Doctor start yapping and explaining it with words and words and words and words. And, like, nothing can ever just stand on its own and be interesting or enigmatic by itself. It has to be explained.
0: It's, again, I want to... um. People talking about how this era works and, you know, it works because it's serialized and it works because it's a big plot, so, of course, it's going to need words. I feel like, um, give or take Classic Who, you watch other genre shows in this space and they are not functioning like this. Other shows are not functioning with this amount of exposition, at least not delivered in this kind of way, which is just a character walking around a space openly asking the questions we want the viewers to be thinking at the same time. I'm sure there's probably some are uh, subpar stuff on Netflix or something in in science fiction that's working the same way. But the shows Chibnall brings this show up in comparison to or to position it with and the other big genre shows people are watching, they don't work like this. Like I don't know if people have seen them or haven't, but this, <laughs> this, is, this isn't how television is meant to work. It's not meant to be this exposition heavy. It's not meant to be this unemotional. It's not meant to be this disparate. Most other genre shows aren't doing this. If people want to go watch another sci-fi show or a fantasy show, I guarantee it's probably not working the way that flux is. So it's just it's maddening to go watch something else and then watch like the start of survivors in the flux and think this isn't how. <laughs> it's it's really meant to happen.
2: Shout out to all the shit about the conversion plates and quantum uh, <laughs> compression and what's it. That's literally only there so that there can be some techno Babble uh, reason to yeah. undo the flux next week.
0: He's got a real fixation, Chibnall, on this kind of weird little attachable technology things that characters can babble out a couple of lines for how they make some plot thing make sense and then they just carry on. I think even in Torchwood, he did this a bit. Um, it's yeah, weird. Have it's the one of his DNA
1: bombs, I think. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. It's
0: one of his consistent. Uh, it's an odd thing. Um, I think you could often just do away with him entirely and it will be fine because he he often seems to forget him himself. It's like in a the mind block things that we don't really Ugh. even need in the end like yeah. there's just so much technology that gets stuck onto these episodes and i think it's that kind of thing we were saying earlier when gig broke down the plot of this episode i thought oh that actually hangs together like i understand the plot now but there are just so many things in these episodes that don't really connect to emotions or even stories in general but they're just big blobs of exposition like about the conversion plates or whatnot it it puts you ajar i think in it Decenters your sense of what's important in a story and it makes it hard to hang on to things.
2: I think when chib is writing a script he gets in this zone where he just turns into a like a words machine because he thinks to fill space in a doctor who script you need the doctor babbling on about jargon and like the quantum blub blah, blah, blah thing and just <laughs> having just whittering on whittering on because people that's sci-fi and that's what people want apparently
0: and i think that's part of why we get the doubling up of like the siberium and the death particle and the time particles and the flux and all this stuff i think it's because there's this kind of ambling You know, I don't genuinely think these are his first drafts, but I think there's that kind of stream of consciousness style that some first drafts have where there are elements where you can tell, oh, you could have cohered these together, you could have folded these together, but you've kind of left them in the script uh, disconnected and just there kind of in the way that if you're telling a story verbally, it might come across as you just kind of add things as they happen. Uh, I really get that sense uh, from his scripts that I've read and these episodes that I'm seeing.
1: There's the yeah. There's a sense sort of the the more technology there is or the more gadgets there are, the more sci-fi it therefore is. Yeah. Sort of the more like the more like sort of Doctor Who is supposed to be it therefore is. Which you know I mean okay we all have different ideas of what Doctor Who is supposed to be and if he, his is more kind of I don't know space opera than 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 mine would be fair enough. But it it is just worlds away from you know um, the sort of gift for kind of lyricism that that R T D and Moffat would often have of you know. They, they, they would be aware that there was some sort of wacky concept or, you know, they could pay lip service to some sort of sciencey sounding name that made no sense. But then almost as often as not, it would be hand-waved away as, oh, well, it's a magic door. Or, yeah. you know, they would play up the fact that it basically, this is just fantasy nonsense.
0: I feel like some of what we're saying can get received by people as, oh, they want the show to be like it was with Russell or with Moffat or whatever. And I assume you guys are the same as me where it's not at all. Like, mm. I would be totally cool with the show being a lot less emotional and character-based than Russell and Stephen's ears if there was something there in its place. You know, if this was very hard sci-fi, told very well, that would be fantastic. That would be something to talk about. It's the fact that I feel like it's not firing on any real cylinder exactly, apart <laughs> from out-of-show things, like um, in terms of people getting employed and whatnot, uh, which might be stuff I applaud more. Um but that's not something in the show exactly that I can that I can talk about. Like I like Bidmead's Doctor Who a lot, and I think that's very different to what the, Russell and Stephen did. I still really love it because I think it's doing big things and it's good at what it's doing. Uh, there's a lot of Doctor Who novels that are universes away from the more character-based stuff that Russell and Stephen did, but they're still really good because they're really going for it. They've got their big ideas, they're making them work. I think a lot of uh, Lawrence Miles's stuff isn't emotional in the way russell and steven is but it's really really good he's got these big Mm. ideas he's good at he's really thought through the intent of his stories they feel very considered they don't feel like a stream of consciousness first draft they feel like stories with a lot of effort uh put into them and that's great that's perfect doctor who to me i don't have a sense that doctor who has to be x y or z yeah i just want it to be something at all
1: Yeah, rather the sort of half-heartedly gesturing at several of these modes at once. Because clearly, yeah. I think Chibnall wants the show to feel like it's about characters, or yeah. he thinks that he's he's doing that. He thinks that he's doing the sort of RTD Steven mode, as you say. But also, yeah, as you said, trying to sort of go for the hard sci-fi mode as well. It's odd. I was going to say that ties into something I wanted to bring up, which is that I mentioned at the beginning the loving the set of the World Tree kind of division yeah. set and the sort of fact that that had this kind of cool sort of slightly mystical grounded well you know it's kind of rather undercut straight away by all the scenes that actually happened there but still um and that was that there's a sort of interest um interesting undercurrent in this of um kind of norse mythology influencing some of what's going on um i don't know how deliberate this all is although again if you're talking about things that are kind of end up in the air you know, culturally, you know, maybe he's kind of drawing on Marvel and so on there.
0: Um, oh, yeah. The various yeah.
1: sort of Thor movies, I imagine, would be his source material for this sort of stuff. Um, yeah, I mean, you know, obviously the flux is quite Ragnarok-esque um, to begin with. The swarm being tied up, you know, this kind of creature that is set free at the apocalypse is very like, um, not Fenric, but Fenrir, you know, the the, the wolf that yeah, uh, yeah. sort of comes at the end of days and stuff. You've got the world tree, drazzled as we just mentioned, um the great serpent you could say echoes the sort of huge serpent that's supposed to encircle the world uh, jormungandr um yeah and i kind of i kind of like the, those things are being played with but i don't know if it's anything more than just a fun bit of aesthetic window dressing
0: with norse stuff um if you would if you were talking like some christian some biblical reading of the series i would take it the same way i take the big Uh, very progressive or very anti-colonialist readings of Chibner, which is that these can be enjoyable to read and I like seeing some of the creativity and ideas the writers of these readings might be having, but Mm. I feel like it's mainly functioning as their own writing, not kind of picking up what's in the show so much as doing this secondary skin, an interesting skin, a cool skin, a skin I like to see over the show like we've talked about, but that is something not so much in the show as in the fan. But the thing with Norse stuff is that kind of has been dealt with in Doctor Who and not in the EU, like in TV Doctor Who, an acclaimed yeah. uh, TV Doctor Who before, um, which kind of predisposes me to more seriously take the idea that it could be intentional uh, from Tribunal, it- who I know uh, likes um, McCoy's era because I know he's um, yeah. talked about liking Ghost Light. When he was asked about Lung Barrow, he brought it back to um, Ghost Light and how much he liked that. So... Uh, yeah, I could maybe see that as intentional, yeah.
1: And additionally to that as well, the the, uh, the unit guy eating um, a meal with Prentice is credited in the cast as Millington, who is a character name, of course, in The Curse of Fenric, mm. um, which you know doesn't really prove anything, but it, it, it sort of means maybe it's on his mind.
2: I think fundamentally, vague mythological references are no substitute for a story. And like we've, had, like you say, we've had Doctor Who, mytho- we've had mythology and stuff in Doctor Who before, like dealt with explicitly and, do- and interesting things done with it. So the standard, like the bar, should be higher. You know, like oh, there's a big tree, <laughs> like I mean, cool image. But again, like if like a vague reference like that, I mean, we're at the point where we should be able to actually take stuff and do interesting things with it, rather than just vaguely reference it if you squint. You know, so I feel like it's not—it can't be treated as a way to actually get anything really interesting out of this episode or this story, because I think you still need an actual story for that to happen first.
1: Yeah, it's not like an interpretive cornerstone that kind of secretly unlocks what he's going for or anything. Um...
0: I think what it is is we struggle to sometimes find a sense of what Chibnall really likes or is getting out of what he's doing in his other work, in his previous Doctor Who work, in Torchwood, and in his other shows. I find it so much easier to understand, oh, this is what Chibnall is interested in. This is what he likes. I can see his influences. I can see what he's trying to do here. Um, I feel like a much clearer path from his influences and his own taste to what he puts on screen in his other shows. In his Doctor Who, I feel like this weird disconnect in, is he wanting to write the show for adults, but he feels like he needs to write it a different way for children? Is he wanting to do something? I I find his Doctor Who so hard to get a grasp on in the sense of what he's getting out of it uh, sometimes. So I think stuff like reading in the myths here—it's just kind of maybe <laughs> a kind of humanizing comfort in that um, it's easy to relate to liking myths and wanting to put myths in mm. stuff. So I think I I get it from that kind of perspective.
1: Yeah, yeah, and I mean even the um, the idea of sort of this seed vault with all the genetic traces of the universe one. Um, I mean that sorry sorry to harp not to harp on this too much but. Um, That also sort of is is part of the whole idea of Ragnarok because, you know, the idea that there's a second universe or a second world created again, uh, rises up out of the ocean uh, sort of after the first one is destroyed. I wonder if that's where he might be going with that sort of universe reboot. Um, We'll see.
0: Yeah, I think um, that makes more sense to me (laughs) uh, than a lot of other flux predictions or Chib endgame predictions that I see. Yeah, um, it's an interesting thought.
2: I think when it comes to being really hard to uh, kind of infer what Chib's interests or motives are, I think like an example of that I think is like when we look at the concept of the division and how that's been fleshed out in this episode and the last, and how we get these um dialogues, these monologues about how division is everywhere, division encompasses everything, and does. Whatever, and yet at this point, it's still hard to infer like what the hell the division even wants. Like, what are their motives at this point? What's the point of it continuing to exist? Like, why does Tatyana not acknowledge that Gallifrey was destroyed and all the time? The Lords are dead. Like, is she just doing this stuff for no reason? And it's like the concept of the division has become so broad as to become like meaningless, like paper thin. Like, it's just it's everything and it's also nothing. So it's like the, the thing that's underlying this whole story arc is again like impossible to get a lock on. Because it really is just, like, lots of, uh, I guess, aesthetic things or kind of uh, gestures, uh, vague ideas, circling around a centre of just a void, like, nothingness. Like, what the hell is this story even about, like, at the end of the day? It's so hard to actually definitively come to a conclusion on that.
0: Yeah, it's weird because I his Torchwood stuff, I can get a sense of what it's about. Uh, not even with that much difficulty. Uh, even his previous Doctor Who episodes, like The Power of Three, this episode is—it's extremely <laughs> clear. Um, you know the type yeah. of story it's trying to tell, what it's trying to say about the characters. His other shows as well, um, his films—it's—it's uh, it's so much easier to get a grasp on. I wonder why it is that his actual Doctor Who, under him as showrunner, feels so difficult to to, to hold in your hands. Like I know we kind of get the sense that um series 11's strictures of no continuity might have been kind of foisted on him to some degree and that um, even just by Jody Whittaker's comments about him as a child that um, the more continuity laden stuff in series 12 and I guess series <clears throat> 13 is more where his heart might lie but then you see how he does this continuity stuff and it's still in this kind of weird wispy way where it's difficult to tell what's he getting out of telling the story what's he want to say about the story and especially when like we hear big continuity stuff oh the timeless children maybe was something he always wanted to tell um but other huge aspects of like series 12 seem so improvised like how the master was a late addition in spyfall uh and how the fugitive doctor was a late addition in that episode so it's so hard to get a sense of what actually is the big thing he wanted to bring in um to the show uh is he and what appeals to him about it. It's so hard to get a sense of that. And which makes quite a difference because I think the other showrunners and Chibnall's previous work, it's much easier to get a sense of, oh, these guys like this and they feel like that and they're doing that because of those reasons. But his Doctor Who, it's, it's so hard to hold.
2: Like this weird attempt to please everyone while simultaneously not really committed well, that, to anything. thing.
0: Uh, this folds into something else I wanted to talk about, uh, which is the audience. Um... And it's who this is for exactly this 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 in general, but this series in particular, because we get all these conflicting things. Like the show is very backwards looking in a lot of way now. Like what the recently we get we got Captain Jack back, Gallifrey back in a sense. The Master, the Daleks, the Uud, the Weeping Angels, the Cybermen, Kate Stewart, the Brigadier, Units, Sontarans... All these continuity elements are getting brought back and the show is kind of fundamentally backward looking in a way now with it's trying to tell the origin story of the doctor and all oh, the secret doctors and all this stuff happened in the doctor's past uh, and we're connecting to the brain of Morbius from 1976. But also the way he's telling the story feels, it's like this disconnected thing we've talked about and also way back to, I think, the ghost monument, we've talked about the whole visual big finish idea. Like he writes in this very expositional way maybe in some sense to cater to an audience that is increasingly on their phones or multitasking while they're watching. This is how a lot of people watch television now. So maybe... The, like, there was uh, there was scenes in this episode where the same exposition was repeated nearly verbatim um, in fairly rapid sequence. Like, I know Aswok said something, and then we had some other scenes, and then 13 basically repeated what Aswok said, and it just blew my mind, because it's like it's not even 10 minutes previously we had this exact same information communicated to us. Like, his whole era, it's very expositional, like we talk about a lot. And the exposition is often for stuff that's on screen, um, which makes me wonder, is is he thinking about guys... Is he thinking about viewers on their phones as he's doing this? So, we've got this intensely continuity-obsessed, backwards-looking version of the show that's full of, like, nerdy Doctor Who stuff, like doing the origin story of Unit and referencing the brain of Morbius. But it's also being kind of told in this way that feels... Like it's maybe catering to the most casual viewer. Uh, these are just two among the many things that confuses me about who exactly this is getting made for. What do you guys think of this kind of topic?
1: Yeah, no, I agree. I think it's a great summary. Um, the the two prongs that you sort of talk about there. Um, I mean the the scenes that kind of, as you say, sort of repeat stuff over and over. That's kind of come up so many times in in his work. I mean, the, the sort of the opening of Spyfall one. Yeah. You know, you get kind of one assassin then the other, then the other, and then you have one recruitment scene, uh, then the other, you know, sort of three in a row. And it's just, yeah, it's it's kind of playing out several times over. Um, the same here with kind of the various unit scenes. You know, you definitely could kind of cut several of those and they just don't need to um, play out. It's a, uh,
0: Even within the scenes it, themselves, it's like how Robert Bathurst keeps repeating how convenient over, yeah, like we couldn't yeah. understand this the first time. We need this beat played it's, three times to sink in. It's
1: it's yeah. It's like saying it louder for the people at the back, or, yeah. or you know, <laughs> for, for the for the viewers who sort of have gone to the loo and wandered back in or whatever. Uh, but as you say, then the, the other sort of fifty percent of the time is kind of con- continuity overload. And I mean, are making the point about how much there's been lately, and I think it's easy to forget. This. There's going to be thirty one episodes of the Jodie Whittaker era, and there's nothing in the first ten. So if you take those out. It means that in the space of only 21 episodes, mm. you know, you kind of got Dalek Cybermen, Master uh, Jadoon. Jack, Angels, Jadun, Santarans, uh, all of the sort of you know extra Doctor stuff, Gallifrey, Law. I mean, really, it's it's, it's a astonishingly dense kind of concentration of all that stuff. Um, and and actually, to be honest, I I yeah, whether it was a kind of BBC imposition or not, and we don't entirely know the, all the truth of that, but I find myself missing. The, the simplicity and oh, me um, too. accessibility of series eleven I mean <laughs> I, series eleven is not good is not great um, but I miss it really
0: I genuinely yeah. find myself nostalgic for it I've, it's hilarious mm. to me but I miss the, the yeah. weird humor of Zimshar I miss the <laughs> yeah. r- ridiculousness of the sniper bots the uh, the Ox the I feel is a little overplayed uh, but the Ox and Neo and Delph the mm. such flat characters uh, with such an interesting power set there's all these it feels endearing to me, and I think it's might be because it was doing something new. It it wasn't backwards-looking, whether it worked or not, and Lord knows it didn't a lot of the time. It was doing a new idea. Like, Series 10 kind of started out, we're going to be a sort of soft reboot, we're, new viewers can jump on. And then I actually love how the series did this, and I think whether it was intentional or not, it says so much, but it devolved into kind of this... <laughs> Incredible continuity callbacks in Gatiss' episode and ending with a multi-master thing in the Mondasian Cyberman in the yeah. episode for normal people, all this stuff. But then Series 11 actually did it. Um, setting aside the resolution special, it actually did the no continuity, uh, all new monsters. I love it. It's it, 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 There's a purity to it, uh, which I look back mm. on fondly. A lot of the time it didn't work, but it was trying something new. It followed through for the whole series. Uh It didn't look back to past things. Yeah, I I totally find myself endeared to it in a lot of ways, like you're saying now, which is funny, but there's a quirky aspect of the experience of watching this era live, I suppose.
2: I think when we consider those two prongs that we were just talking about, about, like, what Chibnall is doing and who it is for, if we were to try and combine those, like, someone who is really tickled by all the continuity stuff, but also doesn't really pay much attention to the episode or whatever, and try and get a hypothetical ideal Chibnall Who viewer, (laughs) I think what that, I think what it is, is I think it's kind of the sort of person who... Um, I'm not quite sure how to put this but like, I feel like these people do exist like people who are like absolutely thrilled at a reference to the Brigadier or whatever and a reference to Gallifrey and continuity stuff coming back but also doesn't really have a huge amount of investment in following the story or about there even being a core story it doesn't really give much of a shit about the actual content of the show or the substance of it but it's just and it's just really tickled by the vague uh, feelings of there being Doctor Who monsters coming back and Doctor Who lore being important. I feel like these spectators actually must exist. I think they do exist. I think we see them here and here and here and there. Uh, maybe that's not a, that's not a great idea to kind of base the entire show around t- targeting these people. But I think it's got to be like the only possible like explanation for like who chibnall thinks he might be appealing to with all of this like non-committal kind of half-assed shit just scattered all around the show
0: i think it's um i don't know how to feel about it but i find it so interesting i don't know if he's actually sitting down him or strevens and thinking you know people watch stuff on their phones you know they watch stuff playing solitaire in another window they watch stuff kind of disconnected these days therefore why don't we kind of shaped the show around, catering to the audience, uh, meeting them where they're at. Uh, It's such an interesting thing to do if that is what they're doing. It certainly feels like it. (laughs) Like it could all be a coincidence, and this is just how he writes, but it feels different enough to how he's written things before that I think there might be some layer of intent to wanting to... It's kind of the patronizing thing. It's why I think his era kind of feels like he's writing to children in a way where his previous work on Doctor Who uh, didn't feel that way so much to me. Uh, kind of this patronizing sense with the repetition and the exposition, sure. Um, if he is trying to meet people where they're at, which is on their phones, I think it's interesting because I don't think many showrunners are doing that. I think it's something that like studios might advise them on maybe to some degree, but I don't think many actual head creatives, uh, at least in shows I've watched, are doing it this way. I'm not even dissing it. I think it's really interesting if he's doing that. On the other hand, I think... And this comes back to, like, previous eras might have influenced other things, and this era might be being influenced by other things. I feel like there's a kind of lack of courage, maybe, in doing the show like this. I feel like the shows that capture people's imagination and, you know, get very solid, invested fandoms or even blow up into the stratosphere like Game of Thrones are those shows that kind of say fuck it you know we're not going to cater uh so much to the viewer that's on their smartphone and not listening in we're going to do the density that we feel is appropriate for our story and we think this is going to endear some people uh, to us and that's going to naturally get a groundswell of um of popularity which happens that is what happened with game of thrones it is what happens with um with loads of shows I think you kind of have to have this Moffat's
1: Doctor Who I think you could say as well Moffat's Doctor Who
0: absolutely I think you kind of have to well uh, I think aiming high can produce really favourable results like that when it comes to television of course loads of shows crash and burn doing this or they get popular uh, years later uh, like like The Wire uh, like some HBO shows that Mm. might not have met their potential in their time but because they were created with that kind of dignity of not speaking down or not trying to uh, lessen themselves eventually they found their popularity uh it's a very interesting thing to kind of go no what if we meet the people where they are instead of trying to convince them to get off their phones what if we make a show that works for them on their phones i i find that really 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 interesting if that is what he's doing um because it's strange and i don't think many other people are doing this and it's a really interesting way to go about it,
1: it sort of feels like the mindset of the was it the promo um picture space for all it kind of yeah. that seems to sort of tap into that idea which um someone reminded me this just the last day or two is kind of ironic when you look back at the fact that um this is a side thing really but um this is uh your first season since series five i think with no queer characters um oh, wow. kind of phasmin thas- baiting aside yeah there's oh. nothing you know yeah i, th- I think that's right um, I mean, obviously, you know, depending on what happens next week. Um, but um, yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, it would have been very easy to do Bell and Vinda or, or,
0: it's just, or I mean, it's,
1: Dan yeah. and Diane as a, as a queer couple instead. But there's just, yeah, nothing.
0: Some, something I love about the um, transition from Russell to Steven was I feel like um, there was kind of a sense, I think, like Russell, obviously he's gay and um, he infuses that into lots of his work. <laughs> Stephen, very clearly from his previous work is uh, quite a heterosexual man um and so you it would have been very intuitive to think well there goes the gay element of the revived doctor who you know we're not going to get so many queer characters anymore um n- i'm not saying the show is going to turn into coupling but it's not going to retain what rtd was doing but that's not the direction Stephen went at all. And you can certainly criticise how he wrote some of his queer characters, but he wrote his queer characters. Uh, He kept that element of the show in. And I'd even say maybe it's not even so much a passing of the show of Doctor Who itself, but just writing in uh, these times and writing for the BBC Mm. is to do this. Um, Because his other shows as well, you know, uh, Dracula, whatever, (laughs) however he describes it, um, his other shows as well, you know, will have queer characters and things now. So... I feel like it's not just part of what New Who had created um, kind of spanning across showrunners but it's just part of what BBC genre shows in general might be doing now. Uh, so we can harp on all sorts of things that Chibnall doesn't do that the previous two showrunners do that we might have opinions one way or the other on but I think it's a grand shame uh, to lose that kind of element as we had yeah. in some regards or to retain it but in ways that are... um. More objectionable than Moffat's perhaps.
2: I think to double back on that thing we were just talking about, about the um, kind of how very few showrunners are trying to aim and kind of meet people where they're at and kind of cater to people who aren't really paying attention, who aren't really that invested in the material substance of things, I think the reason that's not very common is because I mean you're essentially, well there's no bottom, like as soon as you start basically saying like okay we're going to make the show for people who aren't very interested in it then, I mean, there's no flaw. You're just basically committing yourself to making almost an anti-show. <laughs> like, I, I, a, a well, nothing vortex the show. This, the show just kind of devolves... Basically, you're committing to being nothing and saying nothing and doing nothing.
0: I think the only um, genre of television it's really prevalent in is reality television, but that's because it's reinforced uh, by the like paratex, the parasocial element of mm-hmm. it, which exists outside of the show. It's reinforced by the tabloids... Uh, and all the discourse that will constantly spawn around the show, it's kind of protected by this circle around the show. Of these are real people. And so discourse uh, around uh, Big Brother, Survivor, um, those uh, K-pop contestant shows, it's going to continue um, however the show goes, basically. So there's that kind of thing to fall back on. In a fictional show, yeah, you're right, that it's kind of where, where do you stop? Um, Chibnall could simplify this even more, uh, absolutely. And he could repeat himself even more. There are still going to be viewers, like I got lost in bits of this episode. People on the phones are going to get probably more lost than me. Therefore, you could write it down even more. Um, You're right that I guess it's kind of arbitrary, the point where he decided to put the floor. That's an interesting point why it's probably not done uh, with other writers so much. It feels backhanded, but it's like how the COVID uh, elements of Flux genuinely really fascinate me. I am interested by the visual Big Finish stuff because it's I don't... It's like how I keep comparing this to other genre shows and saying other shows don't work like this. It's a frustrating thing in a lot of ways, but it's also a really interesting thing in a lot of ways. Uh, Other genre shows really don't work like this. So it is something novel uh, to be watching Chibnall's Who.
2: It just makes me wonder, like, what kind of legacy is it going to have? Like, that Mm. uniqueness may certainly... make people <laughs> continue to be interested in it but in terms of people watching it to enjoy it like i don't know
0: what i think's gonna happen i i could very well be wrong i'm wrong with predictions all the time i think it's obviously it's gonna have its adherence of which there are many um there are people who get heaps out of this era absolutely genuinely enjoy it awesome you know they're gonna continue to enjoy it um they'll continue to rewatch the blu-rays or whatever that's great i think the other sizable contingent or the other sizable vocal contingent is gonna be the people like like us, like uh, I know um, Oliver on his blog, I think he describes it as like the the endless fascination with stuff that doesn't quite work. Uh, There are some people like some of us who are very tickled by this kind of thing. Like I'm going to keep thinking about Chibnall Who years after it's done just because I find it so weird and interesting how it doesn't quite work uh, or it works so differently uh, than to other shows. So I think there's going to be people who like it a lot and there's going to be people who... um, don't like watching it so much, but found not liking it interesting that are going to keep talking about it in some sense. I don't think you're going to get yeah. the mass of people who just regularly engaged with it like we still get with the other 10 series. I think, yeah,
1: there's almost a sense of will it be useful and valuable in the sense of other writers and showrunners and so on can kind of draw lessons from it in a sort of, you I know, mean, this, this mm. sounds a bit harsh, but as a sort of manual of how not to do stuff.
0: It's really hard to put a positive spin on russell coming back i mean i love that he's coming back as a viewer it looks yep. absolutely terrible doesn't it it's <laughs> for the show to have gone to another show and then a third show and then go back to the first guy the optics of it i think sometimes when we all get the fan brain and we're in the doctor who circles and we kind of convince each other this is normal russell's coming back it's going to be great it isn't normal it's really weird for this to happen it kind of reminds me of when dan Harmon got fired and then rehired on community this never happens. Incredibly strange thing to happen, and community fans recognize that it's strange, and they still talk about how bizarre it is that that happened. It's really weird to rehire the guy who left the show, and who, uh, much more so than Moffat, didn't seem to want to return to it in any capacity. He always seemed very happy with it being done.
1: Well, no, no, I was all I was going to say was just a comparison of. RTD and Moffat that was interesting because you know Moffat spent all the time since saying oh yes I still think of ideas and RTD yeah. was saying yeah, you know no. well I don't they don't think of them at all so yeah <laughs> he, as you say he seemed a lot more done with it not not in a bad yeah. way but you know to sort of be drawn a line under it and moved on
0: So of course everything's still talked about I mean there's stuff from um 2003 to 2005 series 1 and pre-production on series 1 that still isn't quite clarified yet so many years later So it's going to be a long time I think, before we very publicly know quite what happened this year with uh, Piers and with Russell and with all the relevant figures here. But clearly something very big and something very strange happened because this isn't this isn't normal at all, yeah. <laughs> especially because it's the show's even changed hands now. It's getting produced through an entirely different company. So, I feel like when you talk about this Chibnall era possibly having value in demonstrating things that shouldn't be done or things that maybe didn't end up being the wisest things to do. I can totally see that. And I think Russell's main aim in running the show again is probably going to be to prevent this kind of thing happening again. I think he'll really want to set it on a trajectory where it's very sustainable, it's not ensnared in this kind of very small group of experienced showrunners that can run a big genre show not on loads of money, who love Doctor Who enough to want to do this hard job that doesn't pay as much and gets you a lot more flack and is a lot harder than other genre jobs you could be doing uh, for the BBC or otherwise. Very, very, very small group of people that could really... People throw out names like Jamie Matheson who aren't showrunners, <laughs> you know. Yeah. The actual yeah. amount of people who could run Doctor Who is really, really, really small. And I think yep. Ru- Russell's going to somehow want to... um. Put it on a trajectory where we're not having to go. Well, we can use uh, Pete McTide. Maybe we can use Chibnall and Moffat again. We can maybe use Toby Whithouse. I don't. Th- I think he's going to want to move the show into somewhere where this kind of calamity won't happen again.
1: Yeah, so almost like you know the Chibnall era, therefore kind of functioning as a bit of an exorcism. You know, yeah, that sort of brings br- brings to uh, brings to everybody's attention. Okay, there is an urgent need for X, Y, and Z. Uh, sort of as you said, and and. Yeah, I could sort of see him staying on um, as a sort of, you know, uh, guiding executive producer for somebody else's kind of tenure as as the show sort of gets back on track and so on. Um, He Um, brought up
0: Marvel himself at the start of the year. I could totally see him as like a Kevin Feige-esque figure where he's not directing hmm. the things or the equivalent here, which would be show running or writing the things. But he's kind of there to, oh, that's probably not a great idea. Um, to do that
2: which is steering the ship as it were yeah which
0: is uh, what he does with some big finish stuff some of the time like he's not writing um big finish tortured stories but you know he'll be consulted occasionally and he'll say no that's not a great idea to do that or he'll say you should do this instead why don't you rejig this character to be like this he does that presumably uh i don't know if he's getting paid for his little emails he sends to james goss or whatever but i think I could totally see him, yeah, being in an advisory role after showrunning for however long he does this, his second round. So it's interesting to think of the Chibnall era having that kind of value in um, us realising the onus the show is putting on showrunners and the way the show is getting made, which is in such a small group of hands, is unsustainable. And certain other aspects of the Chibnall, of the show as it's continued past 2017 are perhaps unsustainable. Yeah, that's definitely a value.
1: I guess there's also, you know, to what extent you have mentioned the legacy. I mean, I'm sure there will be all sorts of sort of uh, movements within the extended universe material to try and sort of, you know, redeem uh, the mm. era, redeem the 13th Doctor, etc. which I think will be interesting. I, I will sort of look forward to kind of seeing that because I think, you know, I, I, I do think, I'm sure we probably yeah. will sort of have shared this with you, that she is the closest, or, you know, the 13th Doctor is the closest to the sort of, colin baker situation of yeah. a doctor who kind of needed some form of yeah well redemption or kind of or kind of you know um being given better material really
2: reinterpretation
0: i, I can see the inconsistencies we point out a lot being uh, recontextualized by extended universe writers years after 2022 as yeah you know intentional um and some extended universe writers are very good at this, at kind of retconning in what retroactively becomes coherent character development. It's, a, it's, such a, it's like a puzzle. Um, some EU writers are great at that. Uh, there's aspects of Jodie's acting that I think could still be what they are, even with the writing doing that, but it'll be interesting to hear for sure. And I think there we talked about wider canvases. I think um, even with the Fugitive Doctor locked into the Division or whatever, there's probably going to be some more experimentation uh, with Joe Martin if she does audios, and I, I think Sasha mm-hmm. will want to do stuff as well. So yeah, there will be a kind of reinterpretation of the era um, in the extended universe afterwards for sure.
2: I like how we haven't talked about this episode for like half an hour now. <laughs> Sorry, <laughs> it's yeah. <indicative. laughs> yeah, it's not not a complaint.
1: No, yeah. yeah. Well, I think because yeah, it, it sort of it, it prompts all these lines of thought and questioning yeah. about kind of you it know raises a where lot are of, we actually yeah. going yeah what, you know where who's driving this thing sort of thing and uh, you know um yeah
0: yeah i think this episode didn't raise as many plot related questions with us but it raised a lot of questions uh, in general so um it's great to have episodes where you have a lot to talk about
2: i'm reminded of jericho's line which uh, comes kind of out of nowhere and isn't really reacted to but he says um I have a little too much knowledge of the atrocities to come. And there's uh, silence after that. But I feel um, with um, The Vanquishers, the Flux finale next week or the Sunday, I think we can all relate to that sentiment.
0: That's that's a good ending. <laughs> Ends on that note. That's it for this week. Thanks, as always, to those listening in. And again, as always, do feel free to comment, share your take, share your opinions, your opinions on the episode, on Flux in general. On anything else we talked about, we always love looking at and engaging with the comments. So yeah, do feel free. You'll absolutely be hearing from us next week when we all witness Flux's finale. Cheers.
1: Better written. Killer <laughs> hope. Better written. Very cliche. Better written. hope. Better written. Very cliche. But I still felt that that story was fairly... And boring. That's all this year is. You don't even have to watch it in order. Better written. Very cliche.